Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy Tuesday, and it's time to philosophize midweek. This episode is dedicated to my bioethics recitation. They're taking their first exams tomorrow, so I decided to make a podcast that's essentially a bioethics 101 crash course. So if you're interested in learning about big ideas in bioethics or preparing, you just happen to be preparing for a first bioethics exam, this will be a good podcast for you. So I'm going to go over argument construction very quickly, and then I'm going to discuss some more minor ethical theories in bioethics, and I'll end with the big three, which are utilitarianism, virtue ethics, and Kantian ethics. So we'll, we'll get started. So there are two kinds of argument constructions in philosophy. There are deductive arguments and inductive arguments. Deductive arguments claim to support a conclusion conclusively. That means that if the premises are true, if they're in the right form, the conclusion follows. Inductive arguments are the case that where if all premises are true, then the conclusion most likely follows. Inductive arguments are is the main way we get at knowledge in uh, natural sciences. Um, so we perform experiments and that's the conclusion that most likely follows. We can't really get there conclusively unless it's something that's in a particular form, which I'll talk about in like a minute. But a deductive approach to reconstruction is a good way to make a bulletproof and charitable account of an argument. And validity is something that is important for deductively valid arguments. It can be in a specific form. And validity is relational. The validity of an argument depends only upon the relationship of the premises to the conclusion. It can be the case that an argument is valid when its conclusion or one or more of its premises are false. But where we get into that is with soundness. Soundness is reliant on how well the relationship between the argument content is explained or if they actually are accompanied by solid defenses. Sound arguments are valid if and only if all premises are true. Now, there are three very popular ways to construct logically valid deductive arguments. There's modus ponens, which is the affirmation of the antecedent. There's modus tollens, which is the negation of the consequent. And there's hypothetical syllogism, which is just basically making a link between two entailments so that the antecedent of the first um, premise leads to the consequent of the second premise. Those are very important if you want to make any kind of reconstruction that is a, a simple one that's, that's good to um, understand. So that's argument reconstruction. Now I'm going to talk about moral principles in bioethics, ethical relativism, ethics and religion, and moral arguments. So first we're going to go with the principles of bioethics. So the principles of bioethics come from the Belmont Report, which was a 1979 report that articulates the principles of human subject research that became codified in the common rule. It solidified principles that would shape moral and restraints on researchers, and it was prompted by the news of the Tuskegee study of syphilis that happened from 1932 to 1972. The U.S. Public Health Service, the precursor of the Department of Health and Human Services, was studying the progression of syphilis in the Tuskegee study and targeted one particular population, which was African-American men. 
The researchers lied about what they were looking for during the experiments, and there was no informed consent. They were targeting one demographic group again. It was conducted from racist intentions because they didn't really tell the study participants they had syphilis. They just said they had bad blood. And the participants were not offered treatment that the researchers knew could treat their syphilis. That study was leaked to the press in 1972 which led Congress to pass the National Research Act of 1974, establishing a commission to identify key principles to govern human subjects' research. That commission produced the Belmont Report, which was co-written by Thomas Beecham, who co-authored Principles of Biomedical Ethics. That's one of the cornerstone documents of um, biomedical ethical um, canon, I guess, in philosophy. But basically, the... A report solidified three governing principles of human ethics research. One is autonomy, that is respect for persons, so respect for the self-determination and governance of persons. Um, Autonomy is actually a very interesting one because we can motivate it both from Kantian and utilitarian perspectives. Kant says that autonomous agents are owed respect because they quote-unquote self-legislate the moral law. Utilitarians say that agents are owed respect because they undergo consequences of their actions. That is, they, you know, make for the greatest good for the greatest number. So that's autonomy. Then the second one is beneficence. You have to help others. You have to contribute to human good. The third one is justice. That is the equitable distribution of resources or burdens. Now, Some may argue that there are other principles like non-maleficence and utility. Were those not part of the Belmont Report? Well, non-maleficence, do no harm, was part of beneficence in the first iteration of the Belmont Report. It is now explicitly included in the eighth edition of Principles of Biomedical Ethics, and it is a very important one to consider when looking at principles of bioethics as a whole. Utility is another one. That's producing the most favorable balance of good over bad, benefit over harm for all those concerned. And it can be considered both a part of beneficence and justice, but it does stand alone in the conception of bioethics put forth in the textbook that we're reading in the bioethics class ITA. So pretty interesting that it does deviate, but um, autonomy, beneficence, justice, and non-maleficence are the classical ones. So those are the principles of biomedical ethics. Now we're going to move on to ethical relativism. Ethical relativism is the view that right actions are those sanctioned by a person. Um, The argument for pro-ethical relativism is basically saying that if people's moral judgments differ from culture to culture, then moral norms are relative to culture and there are no objective moral standards. So if we grant that conclusion that there are no objective moral standards, then we can say that an action is morally right if endorsed by one person or culture, and morally wrong if condemned by a person or culture. But that argument is false. The entailment is not true, and the argument is unsound while it's in a valid form, so it's categorically false. From the fact that cultures have divergent moral beliefs, it doesn't logically follow that there is no objective moral truth to be sought. It doesn't necessarily follow that a conflict between moral beliefs does not necessarily indicate a fundamental conflict between basic norms. Subjective relativism implies moral infallibility, which goes against the intuitions of our considered judgments, which are fallible, and they act to check potential moral theories as they're put forth. Do they align? Do they not align? And how does the non-alignment relate to my inclination to accept or not accept the theory? So, 
ethical relativism is great and all, but if it was true, I wouldn't be here talking to you about ethics. We could just solve it really quick, saying it's subjective. I think what I think and you think what you think. There's no point in trying to get at some objective ethical theory, so we're not going to embark on the inquiry anymore. But I'm going to progress to ethics and religion, which really um, circles around the Euthyphro dilemma. And the Euthyphro was a platonic dialogue written, obviously, by Plato just after Socrates' death. And the Euthyphro functions as a definitional platonic dialogue concerning piety, which comes from Piedas religiosity, duty, reverence to God and family. And Euthyphro's problem in the dialogue is that he's prosecuting his father for murder. He talks to Socrates outside of the courthouse, and Socrates and Euthyphro question the definition of piety. There are about six definitions that go back and forth, and divine command theory is put forth. Divine command theory states that an action status is morally good has its basis on if it is God's command, and a person's moral excellence is then determined by them following this command. But unfortunately, a dilemma arises. The Euthyphro dilemma. Is something morally right because God commands it? Or does God command it because it is morally right? So we get this two-horned dilemma. The first horn is that it is right because God commands it. The first horn necessitates the conclusion that indicates that God has determined what is wrong and right arbitrarily. So no moral principles are self-evident. That's the issue. The first horn necessitates the fact that no moral principles are self-evident. The second horn is that God commands some act because it is right. And this is an issue for us because this indicates that what is morally right is independent of what God commands. Moral standards then are sovereign from God and there is morality without God. So from the first horn, it seems like God can change what is right and wrong at will. But from the second horn, it looks like there's a standard of morality that's greater than God. And both of these are problematic for our ethical inquiry if we're looking at this um, junction between ethics and religion. Valid moral philosophy cannot be contingent on arbitrary standards. And the alternative conclusion of the Euthyphro dilemma means that God is neither not necessary nor sufficient for morality. So the Socratic argument invalidates divine command theory as an effective moral philosophy. Um, another aside is that circular reasoning is never valid. Either morality exists or it doesn't, independent of any God. So that's another thing to consider here. Finally, in the first little part of this podcast, I'm going to talk about moral arguments. Moral arguments are basically arguments that can contain both moral and non-moral premises. These arguments might use moral principles, moral rules, or claims expressing a central tenet of a moral theory and its premises. An example of this is a deontological moral argument. I will present it in the form of modus ponens. If a husband acts from the motive of duty in saving his drowning wife instead of the drowning stranger, then the husband acts rightly. It is the case that a husband acts from the motive of duty in saving his drowning wife instead of the drowning stranger. Thus, the husband acts rightly. So that's an example of a moral argument. Now we're going to progress to the influential moral theories. And of these, we're going to talk about natural law theory, Rawls's theory of justice, ethics of care, feminist ethics, and casuistry. We're going to talk also about the application of the criteria of adequacy for utilitarianism and Kantian ethics. Um, I'll also mention virtue ethics and, you know, details about that. But we'll start with natural law theory. 
The discussion of natural law first starts with question 94 of the Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologica. Aquinas views natural law as constituting principles of practical rationality. You might be wondering, what's practical rationality? It's the appropriate way of processing information through reasoning. It's the general human capacity for resolving through reflection the question of what one ought to do. That is, humans possess intrinsic values that govern their reasoning and thus their behavior. We'll think about it in this kind of flowchart kind of way. Human beings have something inherent about them. They have this practical rationality that leads to their morality and conscience, which informs their choices and behavior. Their choices and behavior are um, what, is, what rational decision-making is derived from. And from that rational decision-making, they believe they, um, they generate the ability to distinguish rightness from wrongness. And natural law theory sees the law and morality as deeply connected. Certain moral principles are inherent in nature and can be derived by and applied through reasoning, which is our rational faculties. Natural law is unchanging and based on the sure existence of moral truths that are historical. Now, some people might get natural law theory and moral law confused, but moral law is just simply a set of rules and principles that are created by humans to govern behavior. Moral law can change over time, and it's conceived by humans based on cultural or religious beliefs, though they are grounded in deliberative presumptions and considered judgments. Natural law theory also brings up the doctrine of double effect. The, in question 64 of the Summa, Aquinas is credited with introducing the doctrine of double effect. That is, there is a moral distinction between an act X that only foresees a harm and that same act X that intends the harm. He makes a distinction between doing something that predicts some negative consequence and that same exact action performed intending that negative consequence. To foresee is knowing, but wishing that the action did not have that consequence. You hope it would be otherwise, and you do not wish the bad consequence. Aquinas makes a moral distinction between actions that are quite different once you inspect the motive. Aquinas here was trying to make moral clearance in the Catholic doctrine, and this is prevalent for the case of ectopic pregnancy. For ectopic pregnancies, an embryo gets stuck in the fallopian tube and the mother is in danger of hemorrhaging and dying, and the embryo will in fact not become a baby. The fallopian tube in no cases can be suitable for that embryo. So the removal of an ectopic pregnancy is considered permissible action per doctrine of double effect on Catholic you know, faith. Catholicism 100% backs the removal of an ectopic pregnancy. It is an act that only foresees a harm, and it is not same as the one that intends the harm. For the ectopic pregnancy case, you're terminating the life of the embryo by fixing the hemorrhaging risk in your fallopian tube, but you wish it were otherwise had there been any other option. The doctrine of double effect is also used in bioethics, most commonly in the ICU and end-of-life care. Um, I'm just going to motivate this by using one example of a drug that can have a death-hastening um, uh, consequential condition, which are opiates. A um, physician could prescribe an opiate for pain relief, that's its purpose, but it can depress respiration. So let's say you're, you're in the ICU and you're... Um, your physician prescribes you morphine. He's prescribing the morphine B 
because of pain relief, but he could foresee the harm of it depressing your respiration. And these drugs may create conditions that would hasten one's death. So the doctrine of double effect takes effect in pain relief. If a patient dies as a result of a physician giving morphine for pain relief, it's different than a physician giving morphine to make someone die. The distinction is between giving the amount of morphine, hoping it will be enough to make them comfortable and not kill them, and the physician here is running a risk, but attempting to offer good and comprehensive care, which is permissible under doctrine of double effect. So it's an important moral doctrine for helping patients get the pain relief or ICU care they need, but doctrine of double effect doesn't really have any moral relevance to the discussion of omission or act at the end of life because active and passive euthanasia are performed with the intent to kill. So that's about doctrine of double effect. Now we're going to go on to Rawls's theory of justice. Rawls's theory of justice was written as a response to a few problems in 1970-era political philosophy. It was, you know, I guess most directly a response to the utilitarian popular wave, and it puts forth a theory of egalitarian liberalism. The theory of justice thought experiment, paradigmatic, it's called the original position. Rawls sets it out like this. The original position is where you find yourself, given the responsibility to determine the rules and structure of your future society. The catch is that you're behind a veil of ignorance. That is, you do not know the morally arbitrary factors that might bias your judgment on justice. Under the veil, you don't know your age, your socioeconomic status, or other potential confounding factors like natural endowments that would change the principles of justice that you choose to develop. Rawls thinks that this experience would always result in the same conclusion every time by the participants in the original position. That is the acceptance of justice's fairness moral framework. And that framework is the principles of justice in the scheme of justice's fairness. The first principle is the greatest liberty principle. It holds that every individual had the same inalienable claim to a full set of equal basic liberties for all. The second principle is separated into two, the fair quality of opportunity and the difference principles, which provide overt guidelines for permissible inequalities. According to fair quality of opportunity, there are you know, socioeconomic inequalities that must be attached to offices and positions that are open to all under conditions of fair quality of opportunity. The second, I guess, sub-principle under two is that inequalities are reasonably expected to be to everyone's advantage. That is, they guarantee the greatest benefit to the least well-off. That second sub-principle of two is called the difference principle. It's maximum rule. And one thing to note about Rawls's theory of justice is that the principles are listed in lexical priority. That means that no amount of um, the second principle could ever make up for any amount lost of the first principle. So that's Rawls and how you know that kind of relates and it's a principle theory, but we're going to move on to ethics of care, which is a distinct moral perspective stemming from virtue ethics and feminist ethics. It shifts the focus of morality to the unique demands of specific situations and to the virtue and feelings that are central and close to personal relationships. The relevant feelings here in ethics of care are sympathy, compassion, love, and fidelity, Caring is an essential part of morality, so why not focus the heart of moral life on feeling and caring for those with whom you have a special connection? That's intuitive. 
it criticizes also um, some of the assumptions of the theories we discussed. The theory framework holds that the principles already exist that are already exist are constraining, and they seem to be limited, which is why it was developed. So the impartiality of consequentialism and the seemingly removed nature of deontology are two critiques that ethics of care puts forth. Now, if you're more interested in ethics of care, um, go see Carol Gilligan's work for more information. Um, She really spearheaded the initiative to popularize this ethical movement. But ethics of care is closely related to feminist ethics, which is an approach to morality aimed at advancing women's interests and correcting injustices inflicted on women through social oppression and inequalities. Uh, Feminist ethics is defined by a distinctive focus on these issues and not on a set of doctrines or a common ideology among feminists. Feminist ethics was developed as a response, like uh, ethics of care, for a needed sensitivity toward the social context regarding deriving moral principles. So it was a response to the proliferation of Western ethics principles in philosophical literature. And this response necessitated a socially situated ethics as opposed to abstracted ethical theorizing. So we're looking at the moral agent as a social figure in social context. And most theories in feminist ethics reject the traditional traditional concept of a moral agent. The new theorists within this framework now make the moral agent socially situated and not abstracted, and it brings forth the ideals of integrity within relatedness. So... That's feminist ethics. Um, And while there's like another theory of ethics, we can call it a theory of ethics um, within bioethics. um, It's called casistry. It's kind of been blacklisted from being a serious philosophical consideration. And I'll get into that in a little a little bit, but casistry, it comes from the Latin noun casus, which is event, occasion, or occurrence. Casistry has its roots in Aristotle, who puts emphasis on the context in which morality occurs. And casistry as an actual practice, a procedure for doing moral thought, was, in, was um, you know, started by Juan Azor in his um, 17th century piece called Moral Instruction. Azor was a Jesuit who wrote on the question of a physician deferring treatment choice um, of another physician. So he compared cases. And Jesuits subscribed to a epistemological position of probabilism. Um, They thought that in the absence of moral certainty, plausibility is the next best and perfectly adequate thing. Probabilism is great for bioethics because it lends itself to moral nuance, the acceptance of moral difference, and a recognition of gray areas in ethics. But probabilism is offensive for those who believe in moral truth and certainty. In fact, this is why casistry was basically blacklisted from philosophical literature. Pascal's provincial letters in 1656 accused the Jesuits of using casistry of moral laxity, intellectual sophistry, and disguised heresy, which is something wild to say for a 17th century philosopher. But casistry is, is very, very important to bioethics and how we do clinical ethics. Casistry operates in a way that uses paradigms and analogies. Paradigms are clear-cut cases that we feel high degrees of confidence about the moral analysis of. Analogies are the new but related cases with complexities that demand additional moral reflection, including sometimes additional or novel deliberative presumptions. So basically, one 
case, the paradigm case of um, PAS, is the Quinlan case of 1976. So Quinlan was in a PVS state on a ventilator, and her parents wanted to be allowed to have it removed. The Supreme Court of New Jersey says that they have the right to have the ventilator removed, so they agreed with the parents. So in 1975, the right to have the ventilator removed for patients was established morally and then legally. So that was the paradigm case. No one argued with that. But Cruzan came along in 1990. So Cruzan, Nancy Cruzan, had a feeding tube and the parents wanted to be allowed to have it removed. It was a similar circumstance to Quinlan, except that Nancy can breathe on her own and only needed a feeding tube. The complication was that it wasn't a ventilator being removed, it was the request to have food and hydration removed. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Patients have the right to have their feeding tubes removed, and it was the same underlying res- reasoning behind it as was observed in the paradigm case. Care is trying to replace a bodily process that you cannot control yourself, therefore it is medical care. And that became the new paradigm case. Shiavo was the new analogy, that's 2005, I won't get into it because this would be a very long podcast if I did, but look up Shiavo 2005 if you want to see how that became the new analogy. But that's how casistry works. So now on to the main three big theories, virtue ethics, utilitarianism, and Kantian ethics. So virtue ethics is an Ariadic theory. It's a moral theory that guides and assesses what kind of person we are and should be. This theory was advanced by Aristotle in Nicomachean Ethics, where he says, Character is the key to the moral life. It is only from a virtuous character that moral conduct and values naturally arise. He says that, People have a tripartite soul that compose their character, the rational part, the emotional part, and the appetitive part. Only with all three are we capable of participating in ethics. And Aristotle believes that you can only do the right thing by living the virtues and cultivating them until they are inherent inclinations through practice. So virtue ethics goes beyond deontology and consequentialism by insisting that we aspire to moral excellence. It's a goal-directed theory in that way. And for Aristotle, possessing the right virtues means having the proper motivations that naturally accompany those virtues. Being virtuous consists in having excellent human character, which being such, which is being such that your emotions are naturally under proper control of your reason. This occurs when your feelings and actions are properly distanced as virtues from excesses and deficiency, which are vices. So in this way, becoming a good person is an empirical endeavor. You're always trying to find the mean. An example of virtues, excess, and deficiencies is the virtue of courage, as put forth by Plato in his Platonic dialogue, Lashes. And the excess is fearlessness in this case, and the deficiency is cowardice. Virtue ethics is also held up by this function argument, which is um, in Nicomachean Ethics Book 1, Chapter 7, where Aristotle claims that to discover the human good, we must identify the function of a human being, and he argues that human function is rational activity. So our good, therefore, is rational activity performed well, which Aristotle takes to mean in accordance with virtue. And just to understand this a little bit more comprehensively, we'll take this example of a knife. An excellent knife is a knife that cuts well. So an excellent human is a human that acts in accordance with virtue, one who performs rational activity well. So the function argument basically holds that if X's function is to do blank well, the good life for an X consists in blanking well. That's the function argument. And 
Virtue ethics has a lot of objections, but I'm just going to talk about two here. One is put forth by Hearst House, um, and she says that it's too demanding of a theory. Having a certain negative feeling can inhibit our capacity to be designated a good moral actor, and this seems wrong. It seems like not everyone can strive to be a moral actor because we have to be at moral excellence all the time. Bad days don't exist for the virtuous person. Um, There's also the issue of the moral mentor. A big uh, point in Aristotle's theory is that he says, you should really be asking, what would a virtuous person do? What happens if you don't have that moral mentor? What happens if that virtuous person, you know, didn't didn't exist for you to look up to? How would you be able to participate meaningfully and, and hopefully in good ethics? So those are the two objections to virtue ethics and the main tenets of the theory. Now, I'm going to talk about utilitarianism. Um... The iteration of utilitarianism I'm going to be talking about now is the 1864 version uh, as written by Mill in Utilitarianism. So classical utilitarianism is committed to two theses about value. It's committed to welfareism, which is individual well-being or welfare is the only thing that has intrinsic value. And it's committed to hedonism about well-being, individual well-being consisting in nothing but happiness. This means that it's pleasure in the absence of pain. The consequence of maximal happiness is the only element of moral worth for an action. And for Mill, each person's happiness is a good to that person, and the general happiness, therefore, is a good to the aggregate of all people. The happiness of all is the happiness of each, according to Mill. A utilitarian theory of right action is a consequentialist theory that identifies the best state of affairs with one that maximizes aggregate well-being. Bernard Williams iterates the intuition of utilitarianism before he actually takes it down in his, um, in his work, but he says that it's non-transcendental. As a theory, it doesn't appeal to anything outside of human life in telling us the valuable ends of right actions. It's also uncontroversial that well-being, which lies at the foundation of the theory, is an intrinsic value. Well-being is attractive. It's the kind of thing that we think has intrinsic value. It's also the kind of thing that we think we could bottom out our moral theories at. Um, you know, bottom bottoms out at intrinsic values and status, so it seems like well-being could be one of those things. It also enables us to make moral decisions based on empirical calculations. It's a literal formula usage. And finally, utilitarianism provides a common currency for moral deliberations. Your concerns and my concerns can be cashed out in units of well-being to figure out the moral actions. So those were four charitable initial attractions of the theory. But for utilitarianism, other things to consider are higher and lower order pleasures for Mill. There are mental pleasures, which are stimulating thoughts, versus body fl- bodily pleasures, which are instant gratification kinds of ones. There is a distinction between the two for Mill, and they have different utility cash outs. Then there's a distinction between classical versus rule utilitarianism. Um, Rule utilitarianism is the view that a right action is one that conforms to a rule that, if followed consistently, would create for everyone involved the most beneficial good over bad balance. Classical utilitarianism is the view that right actions are those that result in the most beneficial balance of good over bad consequences for everyone involved. So rule has no exceptions. Classical is for basically everyone involved, um, and it's the uh, more action-based rather than trying to follow this rule consistently so there are a lot of objections to utilitarianism but i'm going to talk about um four 
Utilitarianism seems to alienate us from our moral feelings. It seems to be an affront to a person's integrity. This is an objection put forth by Bernard Williams um, so in his morality piece. Utilitarianism also seems to demand that moral agents be willing to drop any of their commitments if a situation arises in which maximizing aggregate well-being demands it. The third objection is that rule utilitarianism has a bad decision procedure. There are worrying counterexamples like, you know, having torture and the pleasure that the torturer gets from torturing others being put in the utility calculation. That's very worrying to people who want to build good theories of morality. And there's finally the pathological benevolence objection, which is that benevolence is not the whole of the moral life. We must care about something other than benevolence because we see that moral actors see the interests and ends of others, but also abide by the demands and duties of friendship and justice. So utilitarianism is only good at the surface level impression that benevolence exhausts the moral life. So those were the objections. Finally, I'm going to end this on Kantian ethics, which is probably the most confusing of the three. So Kantian ethics is part of the, of the project of the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals. The groundwork of the metaphysics of morals had two distinct projects. The theoretical project, which is to define the foundation of moral principles to which human beings are bound, and the practical project, Kant claims that the identification and establishment of the fundamental principle of morality is also beneficial for our practical lives. Kant's moral theory represents the most influential attempt to work out a strongly non-consequentialist theory of right action. And Kant bases morality on pure reason. Kant, in his critique of pure reason, aimed to show that we have a synthetic a priori knowledge of nature. Synthetic a priori means that we're focusing on the preconditions for the experience itself. This is a way of learning something new independent of experience. Moral judgments concern not how things are, but how they ought to be. This is why they can't be a posteriori, because experience can tell us how things are, but not how they ought to be. They can't be analytic either, because if they were, we could settle moral disagreements simply by examining our concepts. So, if there are any true moral principles, they must be synthetic a priori. Synthetic a priori knowledge is concerned with the intuitions which all of our experiences must conform to. So, rather than concerning itself with experience itself, which Kant thinks is better left to empirical science, metaphysics should show focus its attention on the preconditions of experience itself. And there are analytic a priori, analytic a posteriori, synthetic a priori, and synthetic a posteriori potentials for where knowledge comes from, though um, Kant doesn't believe one of them exists, which is analytic a posteriori. But analytic judgments are judgments that are true by definition. This is when all the concepts are contained in the predicate. This, an example of this would be all bachelors are unmarried. Synthetic judgments are judgments that add something new to a concept that wasn't already contained in it, so it tells you something not merely contained in the concept of the predicate. That would be something like, you know, I guess keeping on with the bachelor theme, all bachelors die young. A priori is known to be true independent of any particular experience. Um, this could be a Euclidean axiom or postulate. It could also be 2 plus 2 equals 4. You get the gist. Um... A posteriori is known to be true from experience. 
This is something that is confirmed by an experiment or experience. Um, an example of this is how physicists came up with the smallest unit of time, which is a chronon. That's like 10 to the negative 40 seconds seconds. Um, so, you know, basically that's the smallest unit of time ever. How they got there is something that's confirmed through experiments. So those are the types of knowledge, the four types. And for Kant, he starts with the goodwill. And he says that goodwill is the only thing that is good unconditionally or without qualification. And a, good, a person who does the right thing for the right reasons has what Kant calls a goodwill. Goodwill's will to act in the accordance with the motive of duty. It's a direct inclination for the goodwill. And something has unconditional value just in the case that its value does not depend on its relationship to anything else. The goodwill has unconditional value insofar that its value does not depend on whether the person has any special cognitive talents, is thereby made happy, has certain virtues, or accomplishes what they set out to do. And to understand the source of the goodwill's unconditional value, Kant proposes that we look at actions that we commonly regard as in conformity with our moral obligations. Acting from the motive of duty is what gives dutiful actions unconditional worth. That's what he says in the groundwork. So Kant thinks that the only actions that are morally right are those initiated by direct inclination. Moreover, when an action performs, or I guess an agent performs a dutiful action for its own sake, for the right reason, that's a direct inclination. So actions have moral worth when the motive of duty is sufficient to move the agent to comply with his or her moral obligations. Sufficiency is important here. In philosophy, we have sufficiency and necessity. If something is sufficient alone to move an agent to act in a certain way, then that by itself is enough. It's just enough. Um, if it, something is necessary for an agent to act in a certain way, then that by itself is not enough to make the agent act in that way. So the motive of duty is sufficient to move the agent to comply with his or her moral obligations. That's very relevant. So... Where would we be in Kantian ethics if we just didn't talk about the categorical imperative? The categorical imperative states that I ought to never proceed except in such a way that I could also will that my maxim should become a universal law. The motive of duty is the motive of universal compliance with the law. Acting from duty is acting as though the agent would will his or her action into universal law. It follows that acting from the motive of duty cannot be understood in terms of the content of the maxim on which the person acts. If it is not understood in terms of content, then it must be understood in the form of the maxim. And this form is articulated by the supreme principle of morality for Kant, which is the categorical imperative. And there are four formulations of the categorical imperative. One is the categorical imperative that we just went over. So act only according to the maxim through which you can at the same time will that it become a universal law. Then it's followed by the formula of universal law. Um, that's in groundwork too. So act as if the maxim of your action were to become by your will a universal law of nature. That's followed by the formula of humanity also put forth in groundwork too. So act as you use humanity in your own person as well as in the person of any other, always at the same time as an end and never merely as a mean. And finally, the fourth formulation is the kingdom of ends. So act as if you were, through your maxims, a lawmaking member of the kingdom of ends. The kingdom of ends makes people function as constraints on our actions. So Kant sees the person interacting in a community with others. And, you know, basically self-legislating a kingdom of ends. 
finally, um, I guess before objections and uh, just a little wrap-up, I'm going to go over hypothetical and categorical imperatives. So there is the categorical imperative, but there are also categorical imperatives in general. And it's possible, Kant thinks, to distinguish between two kinds of imperatives. One is the hypothetical imperative, which is imperative that commands an agent to perform an action on the grounds that he happens to set for himself based on his inclinations. And this imperative is binding because you happen to set a particular end for yourself. The categorical imperative or a categorical imperative, is an imperative that commands agents to perform an action that is independent of any actions the actor may set for him or herself. This is binding no matter the ends you set for yourself. A categorical imperative is universalizable, and that's due to form and not content. So just to quickly reiterate, Hypothetical imperatives are not binding for everyone. It's only binding for the agent who sets it. And categorical imperatives are binding for everyone. They are universalizable. So, yeah. All four formulations of the categorical imperative are categorical imperatives. There are a lot of objections to Kantian ethics. Um, One of them is the thought too many. This is put forth by Bernard Williams in his essay, One Thought Too Many. But he says that the second that it takes for an actor to wonder whether they will act from the motive of duty or should act from the motive of duty in in performing an action is the second that might make the difference between life and death for the person in that, that, you know, bad condition. Um... Another objection is by Philippa Foote. She's saying that there's the wrong account of moral motivation in Kantianism. She says that it seems wrong that the unsympathetic helper is more morally praiseworthy than the friend of humanity. Um, I'll just say the unsympathetic helper is someone who hates people, hates the elderly. And, you know, he's walking down the street, sees this um, this, um, woman and this very very old woman walking out of the grocery store and one of the handles on her bag rips you see that she had just unlocked her car that's just a couple feet away and you're like well i really hate people but i understand that it is my duty to you know help others preserve their dignity and progress in that dignified sense so i i must help her from the motive of duty so you go and help her can't believes that this concept of struggle is is important the concept of struggle by the way does not exist in aristotelianism because he thinks that taking pleasure and doing the right thing is the mark of a truly virtuous person and that's where philippa foot is coming from in saying that kant has the wrong account of moral motivation so the friend of humanity in contrast is someone who loves helping people they run all of the volunteer associations at their college and they see this lady see that her bag broke and see her car just right there but it doesn't matter the friend of humanity would help her even if the friend of humanity had to walk five blocks so the friend of humanity goes helps does not help from motive of duty so for kant that friend of humanity is not morally praiseworthy so does he have the wrong account i don't know Good question. Then um, another objection is that what happens when duties conflict with duties? Kant doesn't seem to have a good um, a good answer to this question. What happens when the formulations of the categorical comparative seem to conflict with each other? And finally, there's the contradiction in willing and contradiction in conception. Um, for contradiction in willing, there is the objection that some maxims are impossible to will as universal laws. 
An example of this would be the maxim to borrow money while promising falsely to repay it. The contradiction conception um, says that when a maxim would defeat the very purpose for the maxim to make the maxim a universal law. So um, a, a world in which the maxim is a universal law cannot be coherently conceived because it's a violation of a perfect duty. So a perfect duty is one where an actor must never or always do X to the fullest extent possible in white circumstance. And an imperfect duty is one where an agent must sometimes and to some extent do X and Y circumstance. So a contradiction in conception would be willing a maxim that's a violation of a perfect duty to a universal law, and that world can't be conceived. So that's the contradiction in conception. So that's all of my content. And that's basically Bioethics 101. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to take a look at my book. I go through all the ethical theories, the big ones. Um, it's called How to Excel in Undergraduate Philosophy, and it's on Amazon and all other major bookstores in both print and digital. That's all I have for today's episode of Emmaism. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep searching for the truth.